It's Baseball HQ Radio, the Tuesday edition. We'll talk with baseball wise guy Gene McCaffrey next on Baseball HQ Radio. He levels the bat a couple of times. Shall kicks and he fires. Rose Wayne. There it is. There it is. Get out. Get out. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February 11th. It's show number 7 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to baseball wise guy Gene McCaffrey talking about his wise guy baseball annual, we'll have commentaries from the experts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our Metric Minute, BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield talks about dominance, control, and command for pitchers. And in the Minor League Minute, BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon talks about Philly's third base prospect, Michael Franco. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us on the Tuesday edition of Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Masahiro Tanaka, an ace? Not even his boss thinks so. We gotta talk some baseball. If you are planning on making a big bid on new Yankees pitcher Masahiro Tanaka, you might want to think again. Not even the general manager thinks he's an ace. On Friday, Yankees boss Brian Cashman told ESPN Radio that the team views Tanaka as, and I quote, a solid potential number three starter in the big leagues, not someone who's going to pitch in the front of the rotation. Cashman also said he expects Tanaka to have, and again I quote, some growing pains in his first year in the big leagues, including pitching every five days instead of once a week, differences in the baseball, differences in the strike zone, and stronger opposing lineups. Of course, all of this is speculation, and Cashman clearly wants to reduce expectations of Tanaka, especially in the eyes of Yankee fans who remember the club's previous big-dollar Japanese investments like Kei Agawa and the tragic Hideki Fat-Toed Irabu. Okay, Tanaka is coming off a 24-0 season in Japan with a 127 ERA, but Major League Baseball is a whole new ball game. It looks to me like Cashman is doing what the canny fantasy owner ought to do, adopt conservative expectations about this newcomer. But we have high expectations when it comes to our feature guest here at Baseball HQ Radio. We're pleased to welcome the wise guy of baseball, Gene McCaffrey. Gene, welcome back to the show. Hi, Patrick. It's great to be back. Gene, before we get started talking about the details of Wise Guy Baseball, how long have you been publishing it? Uh, First did it in 1996. Skipped 2002, and other than that, it's been continuous. So we're looking at uh, 17 years of Wise Guy Baseball. Uh, yeah, that's right. I Actually, in 2008, I did a Samizdat edition. I didn't sell it, but I passed it around. To, I didn't think I was going to have enough time to do a good job, so I didn't advertise it, but I found out that I did have enough time, so I did a private little thing and circulated it among certain special people. Luckily now, everybody can be a very special person and get their own Wise Guy Baseball. We'll talk a little later about how they can go about it. What prompted you to start doing it in the first place? I wanted to write about baseball. I had written a book in the late 80s with my brother, and it did pretty well. And I wanted to write some more. And when I moved out here to Colorado, 
uh, I started playing. I still picked up a baseball magazine, and I saw an ad for the Sporting News Challenge. And I looked at it, and I said, I can beat this game. And so I played it, and I did well. And the next year, I did really well, too. And so I said, why don't I write something about this? So I put, you know, I spent the winter putting it together, and then I sent out a bunch of copies, um, you know, to, especially to John Hunt at USA Today, who gave me a good review. And the next day, I sold 300 copies, and that put me on the map. And then ever since then is, okay, now i got to do it every year, and it's been a great pleasure. All that's left is a Pulitzer or a Nobel Prize. <laughs> Not going to happen. There should be a Pulitzer Prize for this kind of stuff, don't you think? Well, uh, you know, at the conventions that they have, the F- FSTA, is it? Um, yeah, yeah, they should say, here, yeah, this was the best writing from last year. Yeah, I agree with that. It's a good idea, Patrick. Well, the FSWA, the Fantasy Sports Writers Association, does give out fantasy sports writing awards and what have you uh, at the FSTA convention. So there is a, an avenue for some recognition, and, and that's really nice. Gene, I know you, you love the CDM games, the salary cap game, and you say it's the purest form of, of fantasy baseball competition. I also know you're in tout again this year, but you're back in the uh, single league leagues rather than mixed. Why did you want to do that, and how did that all come about? Well, it was really uh, chance. Um, last year, I could not make it to New York for the for the mixed league auction, so they put me in on the the new online mixed league draft league. Um, this year, I could make it back to New York, so I asked the powers that be, Peter Kreutzer, Roto Man, the great Roto Man, if he could uh, sneak me in somewhere. And he said, "Yeah, there's an opening in the NL." And I said, "Let's go." Let's talk about the Wise Guy Baseball Annual again this year. Uh, one of the fun things about the annual is your introductory essay, which is always wise and fun in equal measure. In this year's edition, you observe that even a winning fantasy team will have an obvious mistake. What did you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that it's impossible for everybody to get everything right, and nobody ever does. Uh, if you look at the, you know, just pick a pick the winning team in your league, you know, for the listeners, and you'll see that uh, whoever won the league picked a bad player. Um, you know, had a choice between two two roughly similar players and picked the wrong one. Um, it's something that can be overcome, uh, but not if you have too many mistakes. You also note that avoiding mistakes is not always a matter of skill. Sometimes it's just about luck. And for anybody who disagrees, you have a really obvious example, Ike Davis versus Chris Davis. At this time last year, uh, the consensus was that Ike Davis was a slightly better pick than Chris Davis. And it looks ridiculous now, but clearly it did not look ridiculous to the majority of people. And, you know, these people in drafts and auctions, they pretty much know what we're doing. It was not a clear case, and I'm sure that there were some people who saw something in Chris Davis that elevated him over Ike Davis, and more power to those people. But there were and probably even more people who said, well, gee, you know, I need a first baseman, and too bad, you know, Team 11 just took more no, so I better take Chris Davis now and wind up winning their league as a result. Or even more to the point, I'm sitting on Ike Davis, he gets taken just before me, I'm stuck with Chris Davis, and doesn't that work out nicely? Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah, it's the perfect thing. And um, and I'm sure that, that, I know that that happened in leagues last year. Sure it did. Just that thing, and they said, oh, great, 
he took Chris out like at Ike. Either way around, there there is a lot of luck in the game. And actually, I know there are people who suggest, expert players, who suggest that the leagues would be more interesting if we just did it by skill metrics and so forth. And I've always thought that, you know, because the skill metrics are so much more predictable and so much more projectable, that it would take a lot of the fun out of the league. It's like, you know, betting the – it would be like betting the uh, – the tout sheet rather than betting the horses when they actually run the race. Yeah, I, I think that's true. I wouldn't mind doing a little experiment with that concept, though, because player skills do change from year to year. And also, you know, sometimes the the underlying metrics change because of luck, too. Yeah. Um, I mean, it happens less often, uh, but it does happen. So um, I, I'd like to try that with somebody, you know, a little experimental league. Maybe we could do that with one of the expert leagues one year. We'll have to look into that indeed. Uh, Gene, I mentioned that CDM is your favorite format in Wise Guy Baseball. Uh, every year, including this year, you take a crack at a a roster you think would be competitive in the league. And one of the hitters that I thought really caught my attention was Matt Kemp at 1190 for a salary. Given his injury history, uh, 1190s. A pretty good chunk of change. Why Matt Kemp, given uh, the risk? Okay, well, the salary's not that high. I mean, if you consider that, you know, Miguel Cabrera is 1800 then you're paying 1200 for Matt Kemp is not, you know, it's it's above average, but it's not really high. Um, guys like Matt Kemp are good players to have in CDM because the injury, now obviously I'm not going to take him if he's, unless he's playing. Um, I'm not. Wouldn't put him on my taxi squad if he's. If there are any issues at all, once opening day rolls around. But if he is playing, he's guy. He has the capability of being the very best player. Certainly one of the three or four best players. So CDM is a, and the fan tracks game are good places to take injury prone players who have those kind of high ceilings but are high risk players. So that's why Matt Kemp is on that team. Hanley Ramirez would be another example of exactly the same thing. Because you're allowed to freely move guys back and forth, and you have a fairly liberal-sized taxi squad to, to make replacements with. That's right, and you can also purchase players. I mean, that's limited too. You don't want to get, you don't want to buy too many players too early in the season because then injuries will really hurt you later on. Um, but it is, especially at the beginning of the season, it is the game to take the chances at. You're also starting the year. You report. With the Reds speedster Billy Hamilton on your roster at a salary of seven fifty, that's a very attractive, high ceiling sort of salary level. But this is a big debate in the fantasy community, as you know. How confident are you that Billy Hamilton's going to make the team and then hit enough that he's going to be able to use his speed and stay on the roster? Well, it's two questions. I'm very confident that he's going to make the team and that he'll be the opening day center fielder. Um, I think that um, the Reds have planned for this. The fans love him, which is a factor that should never be underestimated in our games. You know, the fans, the Reds are a team that they're not a they're not a big market team. They're very responsive to their fans. It's a big baseball town. There's a lot of passion, and they love Billy Hamilton. He will start playing center field. Now, the second part of the question is: Is he going to be good enough to stay in center field? That I don't know. Um, I can see it either way, but I do think that if he manages only to stay in the lineup all year, he's going to steal 80 bases. And that makes him odds-on to be the favorite in that category. And in, a, in the CDM Fantrax-type games, you really have to own anybody who's odds-on to be the leader in one particular category or more categories. 
also because a lot of people are going to have him on their roster and owning him as an act of self-defense. Right. If he starts out hot and you don't have him, you're going to be buried in stolen bases. Whereas if he starts out and he flops, the damage is not going to be that great because people, a lot of other people are going to be suffering with you. And also, when it comes to speed in this particular case, there's going to be speed that be, that comes up and that, that emerges, cheap speed. So there's really no there's no serious downside in taking Billy Hamilton in those games. Especially at such a low salary. Gene, uh, you're a big fan of CDM, as I mentioned. You play the, the Tau Wars rotisserie format. You also play NFBC, and you call draft day at the Bellagio in Vegas the World Series of Fantasy Baseball. Why do, why do you call it that? Well, because playing against the best. Uh, it's, a, you know, it's a great place. It's uh, the guys that you're playing against. I mean, it's not only at the Bellagio, but in all the other cities where they're doing it. These are the best players, and I love playing against them, and I just love the feeling that when I walk in that room, little butterflies in your stomach, it's like opening day or the first game of the World Series. And I mean, to me, that's, that's what it's all about. It's so much fun. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Gene McCaffrey, the Wise Guy, Wise Guy Baseball Annual is out now. Uh, Gene, you have some interesting theories. You mentioned Carlos Beltran and said that his batting average has gone up despite his walk rate going down, and that this actually happens quite a lot. And then in Josh Donaldson analysis, you double down and you say, for the vast majority of hitters, walking more or less doesn't mean a damn thing to their batting average. This is going to get you in some trouble with the high priests of analysis, so really? Yeah, really. I mean, I had done this study in 2009, and I redid it this year, and whereby I correlated 2013 batting average to four factors. Walk rate, strikeout rate, strikeout to walk rate, and lifetime batting average going into 2013. And in 2009, the correlation between walk rate and batting average was 5.2%. This time it was 4.5%. I'm not saying it means nothing, but I'm saying it means almost nothing. Um, we're not playing real baseball. Uh, we're not using wins above replacement. Uh, if you're in an on-base percentage league, obviously what I'm saying doesn't apply at all. But in a batting average league, walks don't mean anything. Um, I'll, I'll go a little further on it and, and say why. I mean, I've said before, and I'm sure all of us have said this. I know I've said it myself. Well, why should they throw this guy a strike if he's going to swing at a ball? That's not a false statement. But consider that in the vast majority of game situations, pitchers are not going to pitch around any batter because the game situation dictates that they pitch to him. Right. Um, and that's a big thing. Um the second thing is that you can still get a hit on a pitch that's out of the strike zone. It doesn't happen as often as it does with with strikes, but it happens a whole hell of a lot over the course of the season. And the third factor is pitchers make mistakes. And, you know, I mean, I, I welcome everybody. I like to, you know, somebody should study this from another angle because I think I'm the only one doing this. And, I, you know, I'm, can I get a witness here is what I'm thinking. Um, I think it's... It's true, and at the tables, I think people now act as if it's true. But when I pick up analysis, it seems to be everything is based on the guy's walk rate. Um, so let's stop doing this because it doesn't really matter. Now, strikeout-to-walk ratio does matter a little bit, but that's because strikeout rate means much more than walk rate. 
So strikeout-to-walk ratio, the correlation is in between the 41% that it correlates to strikeouts and the 4.5% that it pardon me, uh, correlates to walks. Still, the most, the most indicative, uh, the, the best predictor of batting average is lifetime batting average, and that correlation in my study was 47%. It's not a huge correlation. It's actually a little higher than that because I used rookies who had only one year of Right. Of, uh, experience as their baseline, but you know, even at fifty percent, it's not a that's not a fantastic correlation, but it serves a good baseline function. Yeah, anything above, above sort of point five or so is starting to get pretty convincing. Um, of course, you, you're always looking for that point nine five that tells you that basically the two things are inextricably linked. Um, in your analysis of Everth Cabrera gene, you say there's no evidence linking uh, PEDs to increased speed. And when I read that, I thought, geez, Ben Johnson, all those guys in that uh, Seoul race, a lot of sprinters, Olympics-caliber sprinters, use PEDs. If there's no speed advantage, why are they doing that? I want to retract it because there is some evidence that PEDs do increase speed, and that the fact that these guys have used it is, you know, prima facie evidence for it too. I actually deleted the comment, and I consulted with my agent, and and I came up with the following statement that <laughs> I want to apologize to the, my teammates and the fans and the good people at Biogenesis <laughs> and. Gene, you and others commonly use numbering terms to describe your starting pitching rotation and outfielders, but I wonder if your prep sheet when you go into the draft has slot for number one starter, two starter, three starter, et cetera, literally, and number one outfielder, number two outfielder, and so on, or do you play it more by ear than that? Uh, generally speaking, yeah, I do I do make those distinctions. I'm not doctrinaire about it because I think overriding all things at, at the draft of the auction is to take value where you get it. Um, if I get a chance, you know, in other words, if I have a number one pitcher and I get a chance to get another number one pitcher two rounds later, um, I might well take him um, because he represents the value. And if I've dug myself a hole somewhere else, well, you know, uh, I just have to get out of it because, you know, given that value, that's going to give me, that's going to make things better for me. I'm going to take the value and, and, and dig the hole. The other thing is that sometimes the lines between number one, you know, a number one and a number two are a little vague. Um, so, yeah, I will put a line sometimes on my sheets. This is the this is clearly where it, where it, we separate the ones from the twos. Um, but a lot of times it's not quite so definite. Um, so I'm a little bit flexible there. A lot of times at, at a draft, you'll, um, you're not going to get everybody you want. So you'll have to be lower down on your list of number ones. And when that happens to me, what I try to do is back right. the guy up right away with the guy who's top of my number two list, say. Um, that's a way of, you know, of protecting yourself from, from the inevitable. You know, in, any, in a 15-team league, you're not going to get 14 out of 15 players. So you can never do exactly what you want to do, and this helps you to retain your flexibility. Yeah, you're hedging your bet, in other words. Uh, you argue, speaking of number one starters, that taking Clayton Kershaw in the first round of a draft is entirely justifiable. And again, I'm quoting from the Wise Guy Baseball Annual. You say, the category impact of Kershaw is almost certain to exceed any hitter taken there. Structurally, his category contribution for his roster slot is almost worth almost double a hitter's. That's quite a surprising statement. How do you, how do you figure it? Well, I was trying to get your attention. Um, but let me explain. A pitcher is contributing 
one ninth a starting pitcher one ninth of four categories. That's about four point five. That four point four percent. A hitter is contributing one fourteenth of five categories, which is three point six percent. But it's really the pitcher's advantage is really more than that, especially at that level we're talking about, because he's going to pitch two hundred and twenty five innings, and that's at least fifteen percent of probably a little more of your category impact. So he's really at least six percent of the contest, and probably a little bit more, and that's almost double or close enough to to make my rash statement. But in general, there is no question that Clayton Kershaw is worth taking in the first round, and probably will have most category impact of any player. I was thinking when I read it that what popped into my mind first of all was that a hitter can only contribute in one ratio category, batting average or on base, if you use that category, whereas a Clayton Kershaw can contribute mightily to two ratio categories by providing you with all those innings which help you increase your denominator while keeping the negative events in the, in the numerator down low, whereas a, a hitter can only do that in the, in the one category, and, and uh, even a Miguel Cabrera can only move a team so much. Yeah, that's true, and also, you know, at that level... The, the best hitters are not going to get that many more plate appearances than any everyday player, whereas the best pitchers are going to pitch 225 or more innings. And that's, you know, as I say, that's at least 15% of your, of your total, and that's, that's a huge factor and is not to be ignored or ignored at your peril. I once did a study, Gene, where I instead of using innings, I used batters faced because, uh, you know, people will argue back, yeah, but Miguel Cabrera is going to come to the plate 650, 700 times in a year. That's a lot more than the 225 innings. But then you start looking at batters faced and think about each one as a, as a discrete event capable of helping you or hurting you. And all of a sudden, Kershaw, I don't know how many they face in a year, 1,100, 1,200, something like that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not even close. That's right. Can you explain how you separate players into foundation players, building block players, and so on? Yeah, I mean, to me, a foundation player is uh, a player with absolute minimal risk. I really, these are my first three hitters that I take. And I really do not like to accept any injury risk in players who are on my bedrock. I think it's asking for trouble. I also think that there are so many injuries in baseball now that I think it's worth putting a premium on players, even if they have lesser upside than other players, if they're more likely to deliver it. And with so many injuries, you're going to have to take some injury players anyway. So it's better to take them where they don't matter as much. And now after you've got your foundation, then I'll accept a little more risk with the players who don't contribute in five categories but are solid contributors in, say, three categories, conceivably two categories, if, if those two categories are good enough. Those are the players that you build on. Okay, now I've got this, now I've added that. And you go on, and then once you've got your, all your building blocks, then you add your filler players. And then after those, your speculation picks, the guys who might wind up winning or losing you the league. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Gene McCaffrey of Wise Guy Baseball. The annual is out now. We'll talk about how you can get a hold of it a little later in the show. But, Gene, right now I want to talk about some of your player comments. You came out rocking. Your very first player in the Wise Guy Baseball annual this year, Jose Abreu, the Cuban guys now signed with the White Sox, and you call him no more than a mixed-league corner infielder. This is not what we've been hearing, Gene. Why the diss? Well, it's not really a, a diss on his ability although he hasn't, he hasn't played in the major leagues yet. But I think that there, there are a couple of factors. The two lesser factors are the player he's most often compared to that I've seen is 
Diane Viciato, who I don't dislike, but I have no intention of making him a cornerstone of my team. Another lesser factor is he almost can't have ever played in the abominable weather in Chicago, Minnesota, Detroit, any of the northeastern cities. I mean, he's played all his life in Cuba, and if he's played international tournaments in bad weather, he's certainly not used to it. Now, those are minor factors, but a major factor, the major factor, is that this guy gets hit by pitches like you wouldn't believe, an average of 40 per 160 games. Um, that's astounding. I mean, that's the, that, you know, the all-time record is 52 in a season for being hit by pitches. This guy would break, and Biggio, I think, has the record in the 250s, 260s. He's going to break the record after, you know, five or six years. Um, he's going to get hurt. If you get hit by a pitch 40 times a year, you're going to miss some significant time. And combined with the other two factors, He's a middle infield. Middle. He's a corner infielder to me. And only in a mixed league at that. Yeah, it is a very risky pick. That's for sure. Uh, you call Colorado third baseman Nolan Arenado a good post hype bet. What do you mean by post hype bet? Well, I mean he's been touted in the past, and he didn't really deliver last year. Um, but he's a great fielder. So for the first time in a long time, a young Rocky who might not be a, a fabulous player is actually going to stay in the lineup instead of being jerked in and out, as they do with everybody. Um, so he's, he's going to be a fixture, and he's already shown some hitting ability. So I think that his range of, of outcomes is going to range between pretty good to really good, and that's a, in four categories, and that's a really good bet. You have Everth Cabrera on your CDM roster, and you say you like him more than other pure speed plays like Ben Revere, Eric Young, Rajai Davis, guys like that. What do you think Everth Cabrera's edge is? On base percentage, uh, which is the best insurance policy for uh, for a stolen base guy, um, I actually kind of rank him equally with Revere, and I rank those two ahead of the other guys. And Revere, not so much for his on base percentage, but for the fact that he's got a huge combined ground ball line drive rate, and he makes and he only strikes out eleven percent of the time. So I think that his batting average floor is, is two eighty five, and I think he might well hit, hit well over three hundred. So I kind of put those two guys together at the top of the pure speed heap, excluding Billy Hamilton, of course. And uh, Ben Revere has another exa- another advantage, I should say, and that is he's a really good fielder, which means he's probably going to he doesn't have to worry about losing his job on account of he can't catch a fly ball or take bad routes. He's a good defensive outfielder. You're very high on Freddie Freeman as well. How come? Freddie Freeman has more control over his at bats than any hitter in baseball, and I say that because he took. 925 pitches for balls and about 190 pitches for strikes. He, so that means he's not swinging at bad pitches, and he is swinging at good pitches. That's great. That's exactly what we want. He also hit the most foul balls in of any hitter in baseball, which is a fantastic combination. Okay, here's a strike. I can't, it's not a good pitch to hit. Let's just waste it. So, I mean, those two things combined... And he's 23 years old. So those two, three things combined tell me that this guy's got a really high ceiling. 
And I think it's possible, I'm not predicting it, I think it's possible that he has the best four-cat season of anybody in baseball. And I think it's pretty darn likely that he's going to be in the top five or six. You know, it makes me think when you talk about uh, players whose records you examine for swinging at strikes, not swinging at balls, uh, making contact on strikes and so forth, it strikes me that maybe this is what the uh, an- analytical community was trying to get at when they were looking at walk rate, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, because we didn't have this data. And so we were using, um, you know, the walk rate as a proxy for this kind of information where you're saying, well, he walks a lot. It means he's not swinging at bad pitches, which is which is really what we were looking for. But we didn't have the data to actually say that that was what was going on. Now we do. I think that is an outstanding point, And I think it's very true. And now People are having done that for all these years. It's just a habit with people, an unthinking habit. And I'm say, what I'm saying is let's get out of that. Let's start looking at, at, you know, we have all this fabulous data nowadays. Let's start looking at it and let's start trying to figure out what it means and how we can use it. I think it's a great point and I think it's absolutely true. You put Manny Machado slightly ahead of Josh Donaldson and Pedro Alvarez on your third base list, but you also have reservations about Machado. Explain how you came to the order. Well, it's kind of loose, and I'm not really crazy about any of the three. Um, but Machado has, has done something. He hit 51 doubles in the major leagues at the age of 20 and 21. Um, the guy is going to be a good real player. I'm not sure that it's going to translate into great fantasy numbers this year. He's bettable, uh, or he's going to have a breakout year in all likelihood. Um and as long as he's healthy, I think he's worth betting on ahead of those guys on that basis that he's going to do something. Uh, I don't think the doubles are going to turn into home runs this year in any great frequency. I think he'll probably hit a few more, maybe you know, 16, 17 home runs. But he's going to hit the doubles. He's going to be in a in a good spot in the lineup, and he's got a chance to do something like you know, bat hit 330. Um, I don't think he's going to be a flop. And I think that that just edges him over the other guys. Donaldson I like. I think he's a really good hitter. just think he's going to regress a little bit. Hit 280 with 20 homers. That's fine. Uh, Pedro Alvarez, I think he's going to hit 35 home runs. I know he's going to hurt somebody's batting average. He doesn't walk. He's not going to score a lot of runs. He's not, you know, maybe he'll bat higher in the order this year, but he's going to have trouble scoring 80 runs. Um, so... On, on an edge basis, yeah, I think Machado belongs just a little ahead of those two. Gene, the Twins have announced that Kurt Suzuki is going to start at catcher, even though Yasmil Pinto has shown he can really hit. Do you think this is a bit of good news and maybe driving Pinto's price down in the auctions before he eventually takes over at uh, catcher in Minnesota? Yeah, I think it's likely. Um, there's a little bit of risk in doing that. Uh, I mean, obviously, if you, if, if you play it that way... Um, you're going to have to get a third catcher. Um, but that's okay. I mean, if you can do it, I think it's easily more easy to do that in a uh, in a mixed league than it is in an AL-only league. Um, but I think you're right. I think that um, Pinto is eventually going to be the catcher, and he's going to have an impact this year. So, you know, it's a little bit of a gamble, but I think a gamble worth taking. You know, as long as the price doesn't get ridiculous, $7, something like that, I think it's a, a nice price to pay for him. Speaking of catchers, you like Willen Rosario of the Rockies, despite how shabbily the team has treated him. And you mentioned their jerk-em-around philosophy when we were talking about Nolan Arenado a minute ago. What's your take on Rosario? Why are you confident? His track record. 
Um, I also think that he's going to play more this year. They're talking about playing him a little bit at first base, even a little bit in the outfield, which might be interesting to watch. Um, but in any case, he's going to get a lot more at-bats. He's got massive power. Um, he's a little bit of an anomaly in that he has hit for average with a really high strikeout rate, um, but he's done it. Um, also, um, course field lends itself to a high BABIP. It's a big field. Um, balls drop in there, and of course, balls fly out of there. Um, there are a lot of good catchers this year. I'm not sure that he belongs. I don't think he belongs in the top echelon, but I, right under them, yeah, I think he does. You say Rick Porcello is, quote, right on the verge of virtually guaranteed success, end quote, but he's an extreme ground ball pitcher, and he's playing in front of one of the worst infields in baseball. Unless you're way more enthusiastic than I am about Ian Kinsler uh, playing second base, what gives with this analysis? Well, Ian Kinsler is a plus second baseman. I mean, he's not gold glove caliber, but but by the numbers, he's better than Omar Infante. They have Iglesias there at shortstop for the whole year. Uh, Cabrera's off third base. So I don't think that they have a good defensive infield, but I think it's it's better. And they have a, you know, Iglesias is a great defensive player, so... They've got that, um, so I think it's an improvement for him. And the other factor is there have been trade rumors swirling around them for a long time. I'm not sure how accurate they are, but but it's a little bit of a factor. And and I think that the, at the level that Porcello is going to go, he's not going to require any kind of massive commitment. And you know, if it turns out to be wrong, he should be easily droppable. And yet he does have considerable upside. So so yeah, I'll take him. And you say you'll still take Albert Pujols in the first round. That comes as a surprise to some people, I imagine. Yeah, it's a little bit of an exaggeration. If he's healthy in March, I think he's very capable of putting up first-round numbers. There are first basemen who you have to rank ahead of him. But I think that if he's healthy in March, I'll put it this way, he's a foundation player. I I mean, this guy is a Hall of Famer. Um, They don't just fall off the map in their early or even mid-30s. So I think there's a chance that he bounces back stronger. There's a really good chance of that happening. I don't know. They, I mean, I wouldn't take him in the first round over Freddie Freeman. I wouldn't take him over Edwin Encarnacion. So in that sense, you know, but I think he's got a good chance of putting up those kind of numbers. I meant to ask you earlier, uh, when we're talking about guys you take in the first round, how many hitters into the first round would you go before you'd thought uh, that Clayton Kershaw made a better pick than anybody else? I would take Trout. Cabrera and McCutcheon. And then after that, I think Kershaw is the play. It's arguable that you could take Carlos Gonzalez there, even factoring that he's going to get hurt because he's an outfielder and they're easier to replace. And if you figure 120 games of Carlos Gonzalez plus 40 games of what you get to fill in in his spot, it's very likely to be first-round worthy numbers. But after that, I think, pardon me, the uh, Kershaw's, you know, virtual assurance to deliver what he does and impact on the categories makes him the right pick there. And not Paul Goldschmidt or Freddie Freeman, for example? Well, Freeman, you you don't have to take that high. Um, Freeman will be available probably in the second round. Um, and as far as Goldschmidt is concerned, I'm not knocking him at all. Um, at all. And I wouldn't criticize anybody for taking Goldschmidt over Kershaw. I just think Kershaw is a little bit safer and to have more impact. 
Gene, in your B.J. Upton item, you say, and I quote, it seems as if hitters don't develop these days. They start at their peak and decline. So I presume you must have been interested in the debate that has broken out in sabermetric circles that this observation is exactly right. You know, I didn't know about the debate. I don't know how I missed it, but it w- when I heard that, I started looking it up, and I, and I read the article, and I said, hmm, this is pretty interesting stuff, and this is really important. Um, the article on fan graphs um, that, I'm, that, that we're talking about, was it written by, I want to give the guy credit because... Jeff Zimmerman is his name. Jeff Zimmerman, yeah. I, I thought that, you know, there seems to be a trend here. Uh, this is a hard issue to study, and it's something that needs to be studied more. Um, and I found the, the writing in the article a little bit unclear, but the thrust of it w- was clear, and that is, yes, this is happening more and more nowadays, and this is something that we need to know, and so I'd like to see a lot more research on it. I'd like to do it myself. Um, when I get after the after my drafts and things, I, when I have time to sit down and really think through the the theory of how to measure these things, now one of the possibilities here is that there may be a PED effect here. That yeah. you know players who are still when they first came up were taking PEDs and stopped. Um, so that's something to think about too. But I, I'd like to see a lot of different heads. Um, looking at this from a lot of different angles and see if we can come up with something that could be, you know, borderline revolutionary for us. It is going to be an interesting topic to watch the debate as it continues and starts attracting the real uh, thoughtful minds in baseball analysis. Gene, I agree with your assessment that there's an environmental component here that has changed, but I'm not so sure I agree with you that it was PEDs. I'm pretty convinced that the baseballs have been juiced or dejuiced to suit the game's PR needs, and that's why you see environmental changes like everybody's power production declining simultaneously. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Gene McCaffrey, the Wise Guy Baseball Annual. And Gene, at this point in the show, I like to call on our expert to give us some studs and duds for the coming year. Studs are guys we're going to look at and say, this is a guy I want on my roster. Uh, duds will be the guys that you think, this is a guy I'm going to nominate, try to get onto somebody else's roster, but I'm going to avoid at all costs. And if you don't mind, we'll start in the American League. Who's a hitter you think is a good potential to be a stud for 2014? I uh, like Elvis Anders. I think that he's at a perfect little point of age, experience, contact, speed, durability. Um, I think he's a little bit hes a little bit of a post-type guy, too. I think in the last few years he's gone a little high. Um, I think this is the year he's got a really good chance to break out, and if he doesn't break out, he's still going to deliver. So Elvis Andrews. Do you think that he has home run power, or should we just give up on that idea? I think beyond you know six or seven, um, uh, unless he, you know, as I said before, player skills do change. I don't think it's anything that's bankable and worth counting on, but I do think that he's got a few well over 300 seasons in him, which means he's going to steal 40 bases and score more than 100 runs. How about a National League hitter? I got two. We talked about Freeman already, and the other guy is Matt Adams, who I'm really hoping has a bad spring, so he kind of falls down a little bit because there's a little bit of uncertainty about him. He strikes out a lot, too, and doesn't walk, but um, doesn't seem to have stopped a lot of hitters in the past. Um, I think he's going to walk a little more anyway, for what that's worth. Um, he's always hit for batting average. He's hit all through the minor leagues. He had a fabulous batting average in college, hit for average in the major leagues. Um, 
I think he's going to hit 30 home runs, even if his uh, even if his batting average slips. Um, where he's going, I think he's a real nice pick. And over to the pitcher's mound, uh, how about an American League pitcher you think is a, a nice get for the auctions this year? Uh, two guys, Garrett Richard. Um, he's got he's got great stuff. It hasn't manifested itself in strikeouts, but his control improved a lot. Um, he's an extreme ground baller. I think that uh, the team is going to be better. He's got a pitcher's park. He's not going to cost that much money. He may go for single digits in a lot of auctions. I think he's pretty good to, uh, if he goes for $9, I think he's got a pretty good shot to be a $16, $17 pitcher. Also, Smiley on Detroit. Um, if his control is as good as it was last year, he's going to have a really good year. If his control is an average of the two previous years, he's going to be an asset. Again, he's not going to be expensive. I think he's a nice late target. And in the National League, who's a pitcher that uh, has caught your fancy? Again, two. Ivaldi uh, on the Marlins. He pitched really well on the road, which to me is a, is a great indicator for future success. I don't know why he didn't pitch well in a park that favors his kind of pitcher. He's a right-handed pitcher. He's not going to give up home runs to left-handed hitters. Uh, the, the road numbers are compiled in a variety of circumstances. I think he's a real good guy. And the other guy is Alex Wood on the Braves. Slumped a little at the end, but looked fine in the postseason. So I think he's um, he's got a good chance. They've got a great rotation in Atlanta, and I think he's going to be uh, he's going to be a solid asset. So those are your studs. Let's move to your duds. Who's an American League hitter you think you should avoid? Even nominate so somebody else has to suffer with him. Well, I'm going to freak some people out and say Chris Davis. Um, I like him. I think he's going to hit home runs, but I think that people are going to be overpaying for a. It was a streak. He's a streaky hitter. It was a hell of a streak, but I'm not going to pay full price for it. The other guy is Ian Kinsler. Uh, he's 33. He misses 30 games a year. Um, he's moving to a much inferior park. He had a lot of trouble hitting every pitch but the changeup. I think that a hitter who has trouble hitting fastballs is only going to see more of him. I don't think he's going to be a disaster, but I think he's going to be significantly below what people have come to expect moving to the national league how about a hitter you think is going to be overvalued or worth avoiding another second baseman brandon phillips he's still going to hit 18 home runs but he's pretty much stopped running his batting average is erratic i very much doubt that a hitter who slugged under 400 is going to hit cleanup again this year so he's still going to go pretty high i'll stay away by the way, uh, Brandon Phillips, isn't he the poster child for anybody who's ever tried to point out that uh, RBIs are a team stat? You have two 420 OBP guys at the top of the order and you hit fourth. Hey, you're going to get some RBIs even slugging 400. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think he slugged 390 and, and drove in 100 runs, and that's been a while since that happened. Going to the pitcher's mound, how about an American League pitcher that's likely to be overvalued and worth avoiding? I think uh, Hiroki Kuroda. Um, not... His fastball velocity is dropping. Um, it was hit last year. It's a dangerous park and division for that. Um, he's getting older, uh, and yet he's durable. That combination can combine for a 180-inning nightmare. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but I'm staying away from him. And uh, what do you think of Tanaka, just veering off for a second, the other Japanese pitcher in New York? I don't really know. Uh, I think that he's going to strike more guys out here. Um, I mean, for all reports, he's got a devastating splitter. I don't think he's going to be bad. I think he's going to be, if I had to guess, and it is really a, a semi-educated guess, I think he's going to be a little bit above average. 
I would take him as a number four pitcher in a mixed league and maybe a number three in an AL league, but I won't be looking to do it. And finally, a National League pitcher you're going to be avoiding? Well, a guy I'm not going to get, I love Jose Fernandez, but I don't think that any pitcher who's got an innings limit should be taken as high as he's going. Um, Again, not knocking his ability at all. A guy more like what you're asking is Jeff Samarja. I think people look at the strikeouts and say it was just luck. Um, But I noticed in his uh, pitch effects data that for two years now, his fastball has been hit hard. And I know that's hard. You know, I mean, he's ranking down there with the, you know, Barry Zito and Kevin Correa. Um, So, you know, it's hard to believe that a guy who throws 95 can have an ineffective fastball, but it was two years in a row. It's almost 400 innings. Um, Bad team, even if he gets traded. I don't like him. Yeah, they say, you know, you you can throw it as hard as you like. If it hasn't got movement, then it's not going to fool guys enough in the major leagues. And maybe that's where... Uh, Samarja is sitting right now. Uh, Gene, before we let you go, tell us uh, where can people find out more about Wise Guy Baseball, the annual, and especially place an order. Well, go to wiseguybaseball.com and all those things will be revealed to you. Um, I hope people give it a try. I know it's expensive, but um, I promise you that if if you're not satisfied, I'll give you money back and I won't ask a question. I just won't let you buy it next year. Um, in all my years, I've only had three people who asked for their money back, and one of them tried to buy it again the next year. Um, yeah, I think it was pretty low. But I hope you, you know, I hope you give it a try, and I hope you, uh, I hope you're happy with it. Don't look at it as an expense. Uh, look at it as an investment. Uh, where else can people keep track of you, Gene? Twitter, Facebook, that kind of thing. Yeah, I don't post a lot. Of, uh, post a lot of baseball stuff on Facebook. Twitter, Twitter doesn't like me. They keep preventing me from from doing things and i'm not sure i like the 140 character thing um uh, you know it's good for one-liners but serious analysis i don't know but yeah, a little bit on facebook i like to get involved with discussions um uh but mostly i'm going to be blogging all year and that's what my guys don't want me to to spread it around too much so they're jealous and and i respect that so i'll stick to my blogging mostly and what's the deal with the blog? Well, when you buy Wise Guy Baseball, you get website access all year. And you can participate. You can ask questions. You can tell me I'm full of it. Um, whatever you want, anything goes. Um, let's just try to get it right. Um, that's what it's all about. A private forum for Wise Guy Baseball, members of the community. Gene, before we let you go, we always count on you to recommend a cool tune to go out on. I'm still listening to The Pillows, and that was a couple of years ago now. What are you listening to these days? I am enamored of a band called The Ravenettes from the early 2000s. I think they're still around. Um, Check out a tune called That Great Love Sound. They have lots of great songs. That's their most famous one, a good place to start.
their 2003 album Chain Gang of Love, soon Rose Wagner and Sharon Fu of the Copenhagen noise pop duo Ravonettes and that great love sound. All right, Gene, thanks very much for doing this. It's always a pleasure, and I know what you mean about the 140-character limit. We start talking about baseball. We're coming up to the hour mark, and I imagine we could probably go another hour, but got to let you go. I appreciate it. Great pleasure, as always, Patrick. Thank you very much. Gene McCaffrey is a longtime fantasy baseball authority and the writer and publisher of the Wise Guy Baseball Annual. If you like your fantasy information smart, informed, and lots of fun, check it out. Coming up next, our Metric Minute. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, this is Ray Murphy, co-general manager of Baseball HQ, with this week's special offer exclusively for Baseball HQ Radio listeners. Join us on our spring conference tour. We're bringing our first pitch forums to San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago, Cincinnati, the Washington, Baltimore area, the New York, New Jersey area, and Boston. Use the code RADIO5, that's R-A-D-I-O number 5, at checkout to take $5 off your registration for any stop on our tour. And join us for the next best day to draft day. These three-hour seminars are packed with information as well as entertaining activities, making it the perfect crash course for your draft prep. Sign up now and we'll see you there. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Be sure to check BaseballHQ.com right now and in the coming days for these features. Stephen Nickrand's Starting Pitcher's Buyer's Guide looks at spring training questions in the American League. Matt Cedarholm's Market Pulse column looks at how the fantasy market is valuing second baseman. And David Martin's Head-to-Head column, which is free this week, looks at 2014 draft values as the first installment in his Consistency series. Lots of great stuff at BaseballHQ.com. 
Now it's time for our Baseball HQ commentaries. We have BaseballHQ.com minor league analyst Rob Gordon on deck with the Minor League Minute and leading off the Metric Minute. Telling us about dominance, control, and command for pitchers, here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield. In this week's Metric Minute, we'll take a look at the basics for pitchers with three basic metrics, dominance, control, and command. We'll start out with dominance. It measures the pitcher's ability to accumulate strikeouts. It's strikeouts per nine innings. Your average dominance last year in the AL was 7.7. That was uh, 7.5 in the National League in 2013. Some of your higher strikeout guys for starters are 8.0 and above for dominance. And some of your soft tossing guys around 6.0 or below uh, strikeouts per nine. Your highest dominance pitcher last year in 2013 over 100 innings was Hugh Darvish with an 11.9 dominance. And the lowest was Jake Westbrook. He put up just a 3.4 dominance in 2013. Controls the next metric here and measures the pitcher's ability to limit walks. It's uh, walks per nine innings. Your average control last year was 3 to 3.1. Uh, some of your better, more controlled guys are 2.8 and below. And you really want to start avoiding guys that go above 3.5 control. Um, obviously, your whip's going to go up at that point. ERA could rise, and you're throwing more pitches, not going as deep into games. So watch out for starters with, uh, with 3.5 control and above. Finally, command. Command essentially combines dominance and control. It's a strikeout-to-walk ratio correlates very well with ERA. The average command in 2013 across Major League Baseball was 2.5. Some of your better starters are going to have command rates over 3.0, and you really want to start avoiding starters at 1.5 command ratios or below. Um, As I mentioned, it correlates well with ERA. Some of the disparities between command and ERA last year uh, that you might want to look at. One guy is is Dan Heron. He put up a 4.9 command ratio. Excellent numbers there, but only at a 4.67 ERA to show for it. Uh, Phil Hughes is another guy. 2.9 command ratio with a 5.19 ERA. Look for that to go down, especially as he is in Minnesota for 2014. Rick Porcello is another guy. 3.4 command ratio and only a 4.32 ERA. So look for that to go down as well. On the other side of that spectrum, uh, Tyler Chatwood had a 1.6 command ratio and a 3.15 ERA. That's probably going to go up given his ability to uh, not strike out hitters and and accumulate walks with that 1.6 command ratio. Joe Kelly's another guy, 2.69 ERA, excellent ERA, but only a 1.8 command ratio. Does not support that. So those are just a few examples of guys, command ratios, and ERA that you can take a look at when evaluating 2014 pitchers. So that wraps up this week's Metric Minute. Next week, we'll flip back to hitters, and we're going to take a look at walk rates and batting eye. Uh, For now, for Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Analyst Ryan Bloomfield talks about various BaseballHQ.com metrics and how to use them every Tuesday here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's the Minor League Minute with BaseballHQ.com Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon talking about the Phillies' third base prospect, Michael Franco. With much of the upper Midwest still locked in the grip of the latest polar vortex, it's time to turn our attention to spring training. One of the more interesting position battles this spring will be the starting third base job in Philadelphia, where the incumbent Cody Ash will have to fend off the Phillies' top prospect, Michael Franco. 
The 21-year-old Franco had one of the more impressive breakouts in 2013, hitting 320 with 36 doubles and 31 home runs and 103 RBIs between high A and double A. Franco has an aggressive approach at the plate and walked just 30 times in 541 at-bats last year, but he also makes consistent hard contact and only struck out 70 times, an acceptable total for plus power that you get. At third base, Franco is only an average defender, though he does have good hands, decent footwork, and will certainly make all the routine plays. The trade-off for the average defense is that Franco has top-of-the-scale raw power and so far has shown the ability to hit for both average and power. Last year, Cody Ash hit just 235 with 5 home runs and 162 at-bats for the Phillies, so a quick start for Franco could land him the starting job. If Franco does win the starting job, or at least has a strong spring training, he's an excellent endgame target, even in mixed formats, and is a definite keeper in all deep NL-only formats. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ minor league analyst Rob Corden. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with our comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garropy, Chris Maloney, and Brent Hershey have reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, Jeremy Deloney has a free column reviewing top catcher prospects. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, February 11th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 7 of the 2014 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our featured guest on this Tuesday edition, the baseball wise guy Gene McCaffrey, one of the nicest guys in our business and one of our favorite guests here at Baseball HQ Radio. I also want to thank our commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield was our Metric Minute commentator and BaseballHQ.com minor leagues analyst Rob Gordon with the Minor League Minute. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes to add to our 4.8 star rating. Remember, you can check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. And feel free to follow my personal Twitter account at Patrick Davitt. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday with our News and Notes show featuring League Watch News, Todd Zola, and Master Notes. And next Tuesday, it'll be Steve Gardner, Senior Fantasy Editor at USA Today, on another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.